This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Journey Within podcast. Got a great guest with me here, Dan Catlin from the Wildlife Gallery and also the Experience Um I live actually pretty darn close to where Dan lives and where the gallery is at here in Michigan, only about an hour and a half. Um, they've got two different facilities here in Michigan, one in Blanchard, one in Mount Pleasant. And I live along the along the West Coast, so pretty cool because we get, get to run into each other. Actually, on my way back from the airport the other day, I had to honk because I saw Dan and his, and his better half, his wife, Char, driving along the road there. How are you doing today, Dan? Hey, I'm doing great, Mark. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem. So where 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 in the world are you at right now? Well, actually, I'm sitting on the back porch um, of one of Charlotte's relatives in Iowa. We have a family reunion this uh, weekend coming up, so we're spending time with the grandkids and family in Iowa. Ah, there you go. There you go. I know your your wife gets back to hunting Iowa every once in a while. I can't say I've seen you down there yet to hunt, though. Yeah, I actually did a couple of years ago. I think it's been two now that I, I drew the late muzzleloader tag. So that way I could avoid her because she always finds the big one. So I thought I could avoid her, but she still beat me because she shot a bigger one with the bow this last year. So I still don't win. That is that is a true statement. Your wife usually does shoot a, <laughs> shoot a much bigger deer than you do. It, she does. We we have that Michigan blood in us. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And, and, and there, I know there are a lot of a lot of listeners from Michigan here, and you've heard me joke time and time again. The Michigan hunter, growing up here, and in, in Dan's hunted Michigan for as long as he's been alive. Basically, it's it's a little bit different here, just with how we've managed deer in the state compared to compared to other states. And then then we travel outside of Michigan into a place like Iowa or Kansas or somewhere like that. To, it's it's sometimes tough to adjust. I'll put it that way. Yeah, the, the composure goes away pretty quickly when you start seeing 120 to 140 bucks. You just freak out and, okay, I better shoot that one. Yeah, <laughs> I've, let, I've let enough pass. That's it. That is it. So how long have you been in the outdoor industry, Dan? Well, I would say ever since I joined the Wildlife Gallery team, so 15 years in the outdoor industry. Um, 
you know, like you, um, I, I started hunting at a young age with family, my dad and my brothers, and we used to hunt state land and up in Baldwin, Michigan, north of Baldwin, Wolf Lake area. So, um, yeah, that's what got me started into the hunting. And then the, the hunting industry was kind of a progression with the Wildlife Gallery Corporation. And before, um, let everybody know what you did before, before you joined the gallery, what, what was your history after, basically after you got out of high school all the way through? Yeah, my high school, my dad was a pipe welder. Um, and so I was a welder and went into welding right after high school for a couple of years, but always had an interest in law enforcement. So um, I started being a reserve police officer with St. Louis PD. And then that buildup for the the first Gulf War, when uh, we were liberating Kuwait, I, I got the patriotic bug and felt like it was my time and my turn. So I enlisted and went into the military police. So I served five active years and three inactive years. And as soon as I got out, I went to work for the city of Mount Pleasant as a full-time police officer. And I was liter literally on the job the day of 9-11, um, had my opportunity to go back, but had young children at the time and chose to stay and protect my community at that time and uh, stayed at the PD. Um, from the PD, that's I was moonlighting for Wildlife Gallery and Brad Eldred, um, the owner and founder of it. And uh, it came to a progression where he offered me a full-time position. So any anybody that knows Dan or, or truly, actually, the gallery, you guys play a huge part in both military and police just in supporting as much as you guys can, which is why I love love working with you guys so much. Just, just the background and, and everything you guys do to support retired military retired police and and just being involved that's that's great if you guys haven't looked at that you need to they do a, a ton of work there yeah we we have a soft spot for those that serve um we, we we have a servant leadership style at our business um brad you know he has several friends that are former military and law enforcement guys obviously he brought me on board um i was able was lucky enough to vest my pension between the sheriff's office the city and the and the, the military so i have a a pension from that um and i'm old enough unfortunately now to start that which is <laughs> a weird thing to say i'm in my 50s now so uh but yeah the the wildlife gallery we we support a lot of that um we do as much as we can to donate and give back to those that make our lifestyle free in this country um, and, and able to do what we love, and that's travel the world and hunt and just hunting in our own backyards. Yep. Hey, everybody. Month of July has one tag application that you guys have got to make sure to get applied before the deadline of July 30th. That is Pennsylvania elk. That's a new one that we've been doing the last couple of years and a great one. If you're looking for an absolute slob of an elk, make sure to check out Pennsylvania elk. Growing up, obviously hunted in, hunted in Justin, Michigan growing up. Yeah. When I was, yeah, I, I never, I never left the state until after I got back from the army. Um, and then, you know, like the typical Michigan boy, we ventured out West and my last duty assignment was Fort Carson, Colorado. So I was one of those guys that was a Michigan boy and I bought a over the counter. Cause when you're a soldier, you can buy a, a, um, a resident license in Colorado. So I bought a license for elk and mule deer. And, uh, I went, and I climbed up the mountain till I got tired, which wasn't very far, <laughs> even though I was in shape because I didn't think you had to work that hard. And I sat and I saw nothing for like four days. Uh -huh. That, that was my extent. I didn't know how to hunt the West. 
I thought it was Michigan. You go sit on a stump or in a deer blind and you wait for one to show up and you shoot it. Well, that's not the case out West as I've learned over the years. No, no. So as you were growing up, do you have any favorite memories or, or times in the field that you had with your, with your family? Yeah, I think there's, there's so many, but you know, I really always go back to that first time we, we weren't a real successful deer hunting family when I was young because we hunted public ground. And, uh, I, I was the first one to kill a buck, my first buck at 15 years old on that state land. And my dad wasn't sitting with me when I shot it, but the long story is I, I made a, I made a poor shot. I got excited sitting by myself. So my dad and I tracked it down, didn't wait, didn't have any experience in that tracking thing very much. So ultimately we found the deer and, and, and it had to be, um, you know, finished, it had to be dispatched. And so that was a turning point because I really learned the lesson, um, of how hunters are, how humane we are, because I had those feelings of remorse and Mm -hmm. my heart was very broken at first. And it took me a little while to get to the excitement of it. So I always reflect back to that point of my hunting career and that memory with my dad of teaching me life and death and how important it is for us to harvest these animals. But it's also, you know, you have those remorse feelings too. So yeah, it it goes back to my dad, I guess. All part of, all part of hunting in the, in the cycle. I think, uh, I think all the hunters would be lying if they, if, if they didn't have those, those floods of emotions as you're, as you're in the field. Yep. Yeah, no, there's no question about it. And in, 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 all the way to this day of being able to to collect the North American wild sheep, the Grand Slam, um, you know, every ram, it's, you know, it's those mixed feelings of, you know, obviously elation that you're fortunate enough to be able to hunt sheep. But then what a beautiful, majestic animal. So you, you want to preserve them. You want to you want to commemorate them and, and, and make them as honored as you possibly can. Yep. Yep. So now, um, fast forward being in the outdoor industry, I know you've been fortunate enough to, to travel and so forth. What's the favorite location that you've traveled and hunted so far? You know, I have to say I was fortunate enough to go to Mongolia and to say that that's my favorite, it's hard to put a favorite on anything, but I do love the mountain. I do love the mountain hunting and you as well with your abilities to travel. I'm sure it's hard to narrow it down to one, but, uh, Mongolia was certainly, certainly a highlight of my hunting career. Um, it was kind of like an out-of-body experience because it, it just felt like such an elite place to be mm-hmm. and hunt. And it is. And tr- and I've had this question a few times. What was your What was your reaction of the people in Mongolia? Um, it 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 was different because the, it's a simple people mm-hmm. and. And, um, it was, it was just a different lifestyle. I felt like when we got out into the hunting, out of Yulabintar into the hunting camps in the, in the wilderness, if you will, that it was so primitive, like going back in the wild, wild West, like they had, they rode their horses into town and they had hitching posts, you know, at the Mm -hmm. local pub or store and they tied their little horses off and the littlest, I mean, these horses are tiny compared to our big draft horses we use, you know, for hunting in Canada and stuff. And, but they're tough, you know? So uh-huh. yeah, it was an interesting deal. I always tell everybody the people one, and you were right. once you got out of Ulamantar, the people on the countryside that you meant that assisted with the hunt along the way were probably some of the nicest people of an international location that I've hunted. Just ex- oh, extremely yeah, sure. welcoming. 
Yeah, for sure. It, there's no question. I, I'm still dealing with, with the outfitter that I went over there with and they're, they're super accommodating with me and, and folks that I've uh, referred to them to hunt. So are there hunts that you also do every year? I know you blend in usually a couple of big, big North America hunts and, and international every once in a while, but are there hunts that you do every year? Yeah, we, we typically do Kansas, um, for sure. Missouri, um, and, uh, this year and then Wyoming every couple of years, but Kansas for the first time in 10 years, we did, we put in for archery for the first time because we've always went gun hunting because mm-hmm. of the time. Well, we're going gun hunting with WTA with you guys up in Saskatchewan this year. So I, I Charlotte and I put in for archery with a couple of our friends and, and we put in as a group. Maybe that was a mistake because none of us drew. <laughs> oh man. So that is, yeah, that so is tough. And that's one of the, one of the things with COVID is that there are more hunters and there are more hunters putting in for places in Kansas being one of them. Yeah. I I really happy to see there's more hunters. We need that part of it. Um, but what I see, you know, obviously with these tags and, and you can't blame Kansas to protect their resource. And like Iowa, it takes us five years to get an archery tag to hunt Charlotte's home ground here in Iowa. So it's really difficult, but um, the reality of it is the Midwest, the Michigan, uh, the, the New York, the Pennsylvania hunters, um, you know, they, they want to hunt big deer too. And yeah. unfortunately the way we manage them up there, it isn't the way they manage them here. And it, they're just not the, the number of big deer. Yep. So what other hunts do you have planned for this year? Well, this year's deer hunting, my, probably the highlight is me not being a hunter. I've become a lot more of a, uh, a accompanied hunt, hunt kind of guy, obviously mm-hmm. working with your company, WTA. Um, and, uh, so I, I was fortunate enough to be part of the Trigicon owner, uh, Mr. Benden, uh, getting a couple, um, uh, auction tags for, for sheep. So doing Oregon for Rocky mountain bighorn and then New Mexico for Rocky mountain bighorn and being able to assist and tag along. That's, those are my pinnacle hunts for the year. Those will be amazing hunts actually yeah it, it's like hunting the field of dreams as you know uh, drawing in a, a north america uh bighorn or desert bighorn sheep tag is so rare um that i'll probably never do it in my age because i started too late but on top of that but being able to go on a a governor auction tag where you know the outfitters that we've hired are going to be in the best of the best yeah. places for the biggest and best rams that's yeah it's like going to the world series yep and dan dan said i think we've covered this just about in every podcast that we've done but dan mentioned something there he started applying too late in life like i can't go over that enough especially with how basically across all the states there are more people applying now than there have been in the past is that there really is no right time to start applying for western states but the earlier the better because it, it take as Dan said, it takes now five five years to to draw Iowa in in the zone that they hunt. Eventually, that's going to be seven or eight, and everything creeps up with that elk and everything. So you just got to start, just start and get early, and it, you know it's going to take years. And if you keep pushing it off, that's just a couple more years that you're not going to be able to apply and get out there anyway. So just start, get out and apply. Yeah, well, I told my kids this. I've got daughters and um, and a, a son-in-law and. Uh, a future son-in-law and i'm like if you ever want to hunt sheep and you want to hunt the west you have to start 
now, even though you think you can't afford it now, I never thought I could ever afford to do what I'm doing now. But if you're a successful person, a driven person, you'll figure a way yep. such as I have and you have, and you just, yeah. So start now. <laughs> so how is it? Cause I've got two daughters. How is it having a son-in-law? You know, I have the, the greatest son-in-law, and I'm not just saying that to get brownie points with my daughter, but he loves to hunt. He's very simple. He really didn't do a lot of hunting um, before he met my daughter. He started not just with me. His brother was more of a hunter, one of his older brothers, and his dad did a little hunting, but they've gotten more into it. And then with Charlotte and I having the opportunities that we have around home, he really got into bow hunting, and he had some success and so he's completely sold out. And it's fun for me to to reflect back to when I was his age and how excited I was to bow hunt. I mean, I didn't even care about having a gun back mm-hmm. then. All I wanted to do was bow hunt. Now, that's changed over the years, obviously. But um, I still love bow hunting, but I still I love to gun hunt as well. Um, but yeah, it, it's great. I have a great son-in-law. Seth is, uh, yeah, he's a fine young man. So, and soon to be son-in-law number two. Yep. And he's, he's, uh, and then there's a, a son-in-law number two, um, that, I, that we're hoping for his parents because he's a great kid as well. So, um, Grace and Landon, um, are local, uh, you know, my, my yep. oldest daughter, Aubrey's in, in, uh, Arizona now in dental school and Seth, their husband's working for an HVAC company out there. Um, but I, the local ones are farmers. So, uh, they got some great, great properties and and he's a fine young man too taking over uh one of the largest farms in Gratiot county one day because he's he's next in line i think like fourth generation so oh that's pretty yeah cool. been blessed with some fine young men to to uh, hold my daughter's arms i, I will admit because my daughter's 14 and 12 and it scares the bejesus out of me oh boy yeah <laughs> i remember that too mark and i, and I don't envy you and, and it, i don't think that scary part ever goes away grace and landon ride harley davidson's and being a former cop my my fondest memories are not fond memories they're terrible yeah. <laughs> scenes that you roll up on on motorcycles but hey they're adults they make decisions and you just pray the good lord will watch over them and protect them yeah out there so as as you i know you plan out a couple years in advance if you had the choice, what is your ultimate dream hunt? Well, I think that the ultimate dream hunt for me is pretty subjective. It's bigger than probably just one hunt. Um, and I think it would have to be to go for a second Grand Slam. Um, we're working on Charlotte maybe for one. The stone sheep throws a, a wrench in the wheel. But I think I just love to hunt. Um, and and if I could ever pull that off again someday in my senior years, I think it would mean just as much or more to do it a second time. So I, I think that the mountains just call you. And as you know, mm-hmm. being a guy that's hunted the mountains going for, I think, number two or three um, at some point, it, it is it's a spiritual event. It's so miserable. You embrace the suck when you're in a mountain and when when it all comes together, it you know, as if if anybody's watched the experience and watched my emotional reaction to the grand slam Ram stone sheep, I completely lost it. Um, the tears were flowing, you know, like when my babies were born. So it was a big deal on the mountain. You question a lot of things during, during the hunt. Yeah. Why, why am I doing this? Why, why? And then all of a sudden it's over. 
and you can't wait to get back. Perfect. You can't, you, you can't that wait. Is exactly. You, you just summed it up. And I think of watching your bighorn hunt in Alberta and how you ground that out oh. and killed that ram late in that hunt. Um, that was, yeah, that was crazy. And I got, I know how you were feeling. <laughs> yep, exactly. So at the, at the gallery, what is, what exactly is your role? Well, my, my title is the senior vice president. My role is, um, uh, is the taxidermy. I'm in charge of the taxidermy division of the company, but also the marketing and branding of the corporation. Okay. Um, there's really four key leaders that Brad has assembled, obviously himself as the president CEO. And he founded the thing, uh, 27, 28 years ago now. Um, and his, his tan was so sought after and, you know, Brad is an artist, uh, taxidermist, but he's more of a chemist. He, he just sought after the best leather he could find. And, uh, and then he rose up a young man called Jared, or his name is Jared Peterson, uh, who came to Brad right out of high school. And he's now the vice president that runs our tannery, which is the largest tannery, um, in the country for, for taxidermy, probably the world. Um, we're very, as you know, we're, we're sprawled out across the, uh, across North America and accepting international shipments from all over the world. And Jared heads that part up. And then Nate Walters, who is our CFO is the fourth partner, um, and ownership and partners in this business that run it. So I don't like to take credit for running much. I think the four of us direct the ship pretty well, but my main goal is the branding and marketing of the corporation. Okay. And, and you mentioned, I mean, everybody thinks the wildlife gallery and taxidermy, but you guys do so much more than that. And I've been fortunate as a, as where I'm recording right now, I look around my room and I, I see a lot of it. What else? I mean, woodworking, um, mountain builds, like go through and explain everything that the gallery does and has to offer. Yeah, it's a multifaceted uh, operation. So we we have um, in on the tanning side, we have skinning facilities in Texas and in Alaska, where there's depots. We have two semis that run different routes, north, south, east, and west in the United States. Um, we do a container in Alaska and do importer or exportation from Alaska to down to the coast in, in Seattle and then back to the tannery for trophies there. So the tanning operation is skinning and tanning for sure. Um, and on the taxidermy side, we certainly do everything from a shoulder mount or a life-size bobcat or something like that, all the way to an African safari life-size elephant. But uh, also we have a habitat division and, and all we all those guys work on, that's their sole purpose and job is creating environment. And it's not just in trophy rooms, but it's even in the shop. So those same guys are the ones that design and build the bases, the individual bases and displays in the shop. And then, of course, the wood shop. It's more like a obviously we build the pedestals and stuff, but it's it's more of a cabinet building shop. So we build custom desks or custom desks um we're, we're in the middle of a project for for grand slam club ovis right now where we're going to build them conference tables and desks for the new um the new executive director jason price so it, you know it's sprawling we've we've built executive desks for trigicon we build executive desks for mark peterson so yeah it there's a lot of different uh things that the wildlife gallery does and i've uh 
I get a ton of questions on, on my trophy room and, and the different habitats that I have here um, that I've tried to walk through on the design and so forth. And obviously Frank, on, Frank Neumeyer on your team is a genius mind on how we can lay something out. Let's walk, let, let's walk through the process, though. Say somebody has an area in their house and they want to they do a habitat scene. Like how does how does that conversation normally start the planning process the design what, how does that that all play out until you finally have okay this is what we're going to do and we're going to start building it right there's there's several options um, probably the quickest and easiest way is if you have a, a an established space already that you want to turn into like a habit a habitat scene or design um, because it's already there um, then we would introduce. Frank Neumeyer, as you mentioned, um, he's been he, he's been 50 years in this industry, uh, world renowned bird taxidermist, but um, environment designer. His water scenes, as you know, and in your trophy room are are cutting edge and they've set the bar in the whole industry for everybody to chase. And to be honest, we only have a couple guys that know the recipe of how he does the water, but he still has a little that that 10% at the top, you know? Mm -hmm. So, but, but certainly if you're going to build from scratch, we start with the, the prints and the, the space using that design, um, the environments based on what species you currently have that we can put in when we build it, which is nice to get it started. And then what your future goals and wishes are, we put that together in concept drawings and, uh, obviously price it out, get a budget in place and then go from there. Yeah, no, that's perfect. I, I mean, as I stare around, I'm actually in my trophy room now, which as you know, that's where my, my office is, where I'm, where I work from home. And I, you guys make it come and, and the memories come back. So I know Frank, when he, when he works with mine, he always wants pictures from the field or video from the field yep. and he'll match the mural. He'll match everything. And it just, I mean, it just brings every, literally everything back. It brings the memories back. It's just, it, it truly great. I'll just sit in here a lot of time and not even realize how long I've been sitting in here just thinking and remembering, which is what it's all about. That's what that's what preserving preserving the animals, preserving the memory. That's that's when I think about taxidermy. That's how I think of it. That's what that's the reason that I that I mount things or that I have pieces done is so that I can look back and I can remember. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. I think there's so many like you, and it doesn't matter if it's a small display, big display or just a head on the wall that that brings back that moment in time for you. And and like you said with Frank, um, and I know you did a, a lot of bird hunting and filming of the bird hunting over the last couple of years, and just the, the water scene and the waterfowl scene, which we don't take in bird mounting only for a few select individuals. You would be one of those. <laughs> Made the list. But yeah, you, you are definitely on the top of the list, but the, the, the water scenes and the environments that Frank creates with birds um, on top of, you know, mountain animals and bears and everything else, they're just second to none. His vision and his artistic flair is amazing. I've learned so much from him. Um, Brad and I, I was part of the decision to buy Frank's business 15 years ago and bring him into our team to head our design and, and mountain builders and it was the best decision the wildlife galleries ever made in the taxidermy side of things. And how, like I, I talk with Frank quite frequently and I mean, you guys do mountain builds from Canada to Mexico, right? I mean, you guys cover 
basically North America in, in your builds on, on what you do and where you do it. Yes, that's correct. So it, you don't, it, we don't have to be the taxidermist. Mm-hmm. Um, we've done rooms, obviously, as you say, I'm heading to Canada here in July with a team of guys to, to do an install one we've been working on for like four years because of COVID we're finally getting to go up there, but we've been South the border to Mexico. We're building a relationship for mountain building down in Mexico with Roco taxidermy. Um, I met a, a Mexican hunter in Alaska who he's a hunter, but his taxidermist passed away and he bought the shop and talk about a professional run organization in Mexico. I had to hook our wagon to it and he's a great guy. And we're now starting to design and work on builds south of the border in Mexico where we're, we're actually training. Charlotte and I went down there and did some taxidermy training because I feel like in the taxidermy industry, you shouldn't hold secrets. You yeah. should, if we can rise up the, the industry, it can demand a better living for those artists and taxidermists. I mean, it's like anything else. So, um, we're very keen on sharing. Um, we have almost 7,000 tanning clients and they can call the taxidermy studio anytime and ask for a tip or help or whatever, and we'll give it to them. So we feel like our team of taxidermists isn't just the dozen guys we have mounting stuff in the shop. It's also those 7,000 taxidermists that might need help or assistance with the leather that we provide them. Mm -hmm. And that's, so I have to admit, I fo- I was following you on social and I saw you guys were down in Mexico and that's what you guys were doing. You were kind of putting a workshop on down there. That's yeah, we, pretty awesome. Yeah. We took Jared, who's the, the that runs the tannery that I yep. spoke of, Jared Peterson. So we sent down a few of our old wet drums. Jared gave them a recipe for their tan so they would have not just a pickled skin, they'd have an actual tan skin. So Jared was going through, and obviously this all went through Brad, Jared, Nate, and I, this whole plan and design to try to garner some work in Mexico with the trophy room side. Um, We're sharing with them because the last trophy room we did in Mexico, obviously we didn't do any of the taxidermy. And Mm -hmm. we look at the taxidermy, and I'm not beating their taxidermists up there. They just haven't had the the networking and experience that we have in America. And uh, so we decided, hey, we're going to try to up their game in areas down there. So that's what we're doing. And to be completely honest, Mark, I I was amazed at how good and how quickly these guys learned some of the techniques that we showed them. And they're hungry. They're they're humble. Um, Sometimes in America, as you know, we have some ego that gets involved. um, And we have to check our egos at the door. There, There was no ego in Mexico. They just wanted us to be there. And uh, they wanted to learn. So it was a really neat experience for all of us. That's that's a great, actually. So are you guys set to go down again? Yep. Um, Charlotte and I are going down. Um, well, once his bear, uh, the owner, um, his bear, he's got a bear, mountain goat, and a black-tailed deer. Okay. We're going to do life-size mounts. And uh, we're going to put on a seminar for life-size because we just did shoulder mounts this time. Okay. And, and so we're going to do another seminar, and then Jared's going to go down and uh, look at how their tan's coming, how well they're doing, the consistency of it, and offer more instruction or tips if needed. Um, so, yeah, we're working real hard on a partnership down there and uh, bringing up their standards and then also seeking out trophy room builds. 
Everyone knows Matthews is the leader in archery innovations, and I'm proud to be part of their team. Little did they know I've been part of their team ever since I started pulling a bow back when I was 12. I personally shoot their new Matthews V3X and love it. So go visit MatthewsInc.com and pick out your next bow. Hey everybody, I've been partnered and working with Bass Pro and Cabela's now for a long time. They're your one-stop shop for anything outdoors. Personally, I use them for all my camping and backpack needs for all my backcountry trips. Make sure to check them out at BassPro.com or Cabela's.com. Hey guys, are you into keeping your whitetail herd healthy and strong? Go check out Buck Bourbon and their full line of mineral and attractants. Personally, my favorite is 110 proof because I've had some great memories and great deer taken over top of it in the state of Kentucky. Born from bourbon, field tested, wildlife approved. Check them out at buckbourbon.com. And on the, I, and I have to kind of a selfish question here for me. What, like I understand the tanning process from an extremely high level. There are different types of tanning, correct? Yeah, there sure is. Yeah. What what what's the method that the gallery uses that makes it? I mean, I mean makes it the best compared to what well, older models or, or older methods of tanning. Well, I'm certainly not the scholar in this, but I do know this part. We have two tanneries because taxidermists are old school. Some of them you just can't teach an old dog new tricks, yep. and they like what's called the old alum tan. Uh, and so the old alum tan, we still run down in our Leslie facility in Lansing because we have two tanneries, commercial tanneries in Michigan. And Leslie's a, a much smaller, but it, it, it's a commercial tannery that we, we bought 16, 17 years ago. And that runs the alum tan. The big tannery in Mount Pleasant, Michigan, in the industrial park, runs a synthetic tan. And, and the benefits of a synthetic, the, the, the drawback of a synthetic tan that some of the old timers don't like which I understand sometimes I get frustrated with it, but it's getting better. We're learning new things all the time is stretch. Okay. But, um, sometimes you guys like deer heads overstretched. Let's just face it. Yep. They want their deer. They, everybody shoots a 250, 300 pound deer dressed. That's just the way it is. And so it's tough sometimes to keep the client happy. If you don't have this balloon neck, alum typically you can overstretch you can over neutralize and get that leather to go and sometime with the synthetic it won't let go so that might be the downfall however in the last couple months we are determining some new chemicals and brad's been working with the chemists and jared and uh, i think we might be on to something with the synthetic the the biggest advantage of synthetic tan is it's truly leather when it's tanned so it's not going to break down okay it, it won't fall apart so i mean we don't like to tell people this because it's a pain in the neck but we have torn apart old mounts scraped the glue off it rehydrated it and remounted it a couple different leopards in the past that were mounted brad had a leopard we mounted like 17 years ago uh -huh. that we 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 completely stripped it and it still had leather it did not fall apart when you introduce water alum tan's fine it's not going to fall apart as long as it's on the form and it's mounted, but you aren't going to re-soak it because then it'll tear apart like tissue paper because it, it doesn't have the the, the makeup um, to last in a leather state forever. Gotcha. So it gives you more options later on. Yeah. the, yeah. the, the, the and, it, and with the taxidermist, it gives you some shelf life. So if you're a taxidermist that's far behind that, that uh your your synthetic can is probably the best choice because it'll sit on the shelf a lot longer and not go bad 
um, alum tan has some shelf life. I would want, if I did an alum tan, which I have no problems working with an alum tan, they're fine. Um, it's just, I'd like to be after mounting them within one year. I don't want them to sit around. And so listen, if you're behind, you don't want to use the alum tan. And, and you set a line there. I don't know any taxidermists that are behind and mounting anything. <laughs> well, <laughs> everybody, everybody listening, shaking their head right now going, yep. Behind that leads me right <laughs> that leads me right into the systematic approach to taxidermy and timeliness so not only is that something that i felt like i brought to the team and structure and uh is the fact that we we are we have a system in place that keeps us on task and if we're not on task we know we're going to be like four weeks behind and so right now we're a six-month shop so what that means at the wildlife gallery, when Mark's daughter's deer shows up, once it arrives at our facility and Mark talks to um, Owen, his his project manager, and he put in a pose and get all the details worked out, he pays a 50% deposit. As soon as that button's mashed in our system that deposits received, it goes on a list for production management. You got six months to have that done and ready to be delivered. So... Every week, uh, production manager, delivery guy, general manager, they're going over reports. Every month, we have a meeting with all of our shop leaders, um, including myself, and we go over these reports, among other things, to keep us on task. So we are a taxidermy studio, but we run like a uh, corporation, like a business. So that's the biggest difference with the Wildlife Gallery. You said it, and... It's extremely, I mean, having used you guys for years, it's extremely efficient. And that's that's the beauty, too, is that, you know, when you talk and I just have to go over the pose one time with Owen, and it's done. I don't have to worry about anything else. Nothing through yep. the process. It's just done, and then all of a sudden it's it's ready to come to my house. And that's, yep. that's, that's the beauty of it for me is that it's just, it's so well organized that you guys just take it right, right from the beginning. What is, what's the busiest time at, at the gallery i mean obviously is it the fall is it michigan season is it early out west what is the busiest time at the gallery you know i think it's probably september through the first of the year um because you'll have uh, you know no matter what you have the busy time of the michigan season and the western season going on but then you start to deal with the alaska depot and things happening up there and shipments coming in so what we what we really pride ourselves in is communication. Like, you know, I'm I'm never on vacation. Uh, my customer service people are very very limited vacation in regards to they have their phones and when it when there's a need arises they will talk to the client. Um, we provide that you know that phone and that opportunity and and I don't expect everybody to work on their days off. Mm -hmm. Don't make no mistake. But I think that's the world we live in is communication, emails and phone calls. So, um, you know, so starting September, you know, late August, early September, our phones are very active with incoming things, questions. But then, you know, we have a little bit of a, a little bump there in the spring just from people going to Africa, sending out tags. So we're pretty consistent, but the office and the shop is very hopping uh, starting in September through the first of the year for sure. And I'm, and if you drop off, so if you're local to the gallery, you can just bring your deer in with the tag right to the skinning spot in the back, or how do, how does that work? Or do you guys only take shoulder once it's skinned out? 
Yeah, it depends on the, the, the whatever the EHD or not the EHD the 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 CWD laws are yeah. uh, on counties and stuff. But yeah, if you shoot one locally around the, you know, you can just bring it in where you take it to your butcher shop, skin it down, cut it off at the, you know, we take it from the from the uh, base of the head down, and the, our guys will take it off the face and everything. But as you know now with all the new CWD yeah, yeah. restrictions and regulations, when you go out of state, if it's an elk deer moose antelope whatever it is take it out you got to get either get take it to a tag service or learn how to do it yourself because it's got to come off the face yep, yep. no brain matters so if you're going to do a european and you want the cape you're going to have to uh get that that brain matter and tissue off the skull too before you transport it back in across state lines Yep. and you mentioned the alaska depot a couple of times i actually used the alaska depot with my brown bear and for people that, that have hunted in Alaska before the gallery had the depot, the options up there were extremely tough. So if you think you're going on a, a grizzly bear hunt, even moose. So any, I mean, most of the stuff in Alaska, let's face it, it's big. You're not packing it back. Yeah. You're not bringing it back in your, in your um, checked luggage. You're not bringing a moose right. back or a bear or anything like that. But I literally remember we flew out of the field with the bear, and the bear hide was 135 pounds in the tub minus the skull. I, I remember that because I carried the dang thing out which seemed like yeah. it took forever, but literally flew in, flew into Anchorage, met there, and I didn't have to worry about it. You guys took it from there. It was like the easiest transition for taxidermy stuff that I've had. It was hands-off, and then all of a sudden, I mean, I think that one, two of them, Frank did a heck of a job with the, the grizzly that I shot there with the habitat scene yeah, um, and the fish in there. And that, like everybody asks why you use the wildlife gallery, and if you want special, I mean, special pieces – done that are above and beyond like that i i look at this one i'm staring back and i'm turning and looking at it now and it's a grizzly bear coming down um and the reason that frank did it like this, this is exactly how the hunt played out i had to cross a creek and i say creek it was a river because it was up to your knees soaking wet and we used this to stalk in on the bear and he basically took what i explained to him showed him the video and recreated it so every time every time i look at this bear Instantly, I go back to the memory in the field. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at marines.com. Yeah, that's that's a special piece, and we appreciate you allowing us to do it, and then also take it and um, and show it off at all the conventions that next year. It was it was it was a great piece for people to get a vision themselves because you can explain things all you want, but once you actually see it, it's like wow. That's a special piece. But, yeah, I think the Alaska Depot, Mark, works exactly like the rest of our business. We try to develop systems that make things efficient. Mm -hmm. And 
you know, when, when I came to the wildlife gallery, one of the things Brad uh, wanted me to do is try to change the industry, just like he changed the industry with the tannery. Now, there's no I in this. I did not do all this. Um, we have a, a great group of people, including Brad's vision himself, of turning this into a customer-friendly environment and systematic approach. And I liken it back, you know, we all have life lessons. And with me, um, a big a big thing was police work because that was my whole life. And I learned in police work that good communication, officer-friendly, kept me out of a lot of conflicts and a lot of fights. Mm -hmm. You know, it don't matter how big your biceps are, someone's going to knock your head off no matter what in that profession. So it's the same thing in business. It's it's uh, professional courtesy, being kind to people, treating them the way you want to be treated. And that's one of the, the, the three principles that I feel like that I brought to the table and actually put it out as a motto for our company is do what's right, do your best, treat others the way you want to be treated. And when we make decisions at the Wildlife Gallery, we look at that every time. Are we doing the right thing? Are we doing our very best in this situation? Are we treating people the way we'd want to be treated if we were in that situation? Mm -hmm. So we don't always hit the mark. Sometimes we miss it. Sometimes we screw it up. But I'll tell you what, we will make it right the best way we can, the way we would want it to be made right. So, What is in it? What does your quality process look like? So say a mount gets finished. What is it? What is, what's the process after that? Like I, and I, and this is probably a good spot. Talk about the portal and everything that you guys have for, for pictures and so forth. So clients can follow along. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, because that is a huge deal. So we have, as you know, we have different taxidermists mounting different things based on their, their abilities, <laughs> but also, um, the most experienced people are the ones that are going over things. So the day after something's mounted by someone, by anyone, even the most experienced guy, there's other eyes that look at it and other eyeballs put on it. Because when you're mounting things, you might not see symmetry. You might not see this or that and, and, and anatomy. So it gets looked at while it's still wet so it can be tweaked. And then it goes through the drying process in the shop there, in the taxidermy shop before it goes to the finish department to get all the finishing touches, it gets reviewed again by the most experienced guys and senior guys in the shop. And then after it's all finished up, it goes into staging. So it's been through two previous checks. Once it's in staging, the, the production manager um, and delivery, and a lot of times Owen, because he's a master taxidermist that's world renowned and judges shows all over the country. And he's judging right now, I think in Alabama, so Owen's a big part of this uh, quality control. They give it one final look over before it goes in a trailer to go to the client. So, yeah, quality control is a huge thing, especially dealing with volume. That's great. And on, you mentioned into the, into the trailer. So what delivery options does, does the gallery have if, if somebody's not local and they're not going to go in and just swing by because it's right up the road? Right. Well, we've de we've developed a white glove service all the way down to putting it in a crate and freighting, whatever your budget allows, because we've done some great trophy rooms to the West. Um, we did a couple in Reno and they're just beautiful. But we, we understand that the cost of delivering all the way out there for taxidermy work isn't isn't uh, conducive to a budget at all. Mm -hmm. So um, 
we don't do all the taxidermy for all these rooms that we built. That being said, we have a we have a um, a logistics manager that does hands-on delivery with our truck and trailer to your front door. We also offer a setup service, a hanging service from my people. Um, and the prices vary based on that. So he loads a trailer and he he delivers based on the square footage it takes in the trailer and how far he's going. So trying to keep the cost down. Um, and then obviously crate and freight or come pick it up yourself works. And if you bring your own trailer, he'll help you secure everything. Mike Helmer, he's great at that. Get everything in the trailer and secured and fastened down and ready to go for you to take home. Yeah, that's awesome. I always like to see the trailer pull into my house. I know that. <laughs> yeah. It even pulls in my house occasionally, and I'm pretty excited. So all my sheep are, <laughs> not all of them, a couple of my sheep are missing in action right now for other other things and marketing opportunities. And they're soon to be, and my moose, soon to be coming to my house this summer, and I can't wait for the trailer to show up. Did So this is a good question. So being a taxidermist, how do you pick your poses? For your, well, for your my, for your own house, yeah. From from my perspective, it's different. You know, a lot of taxidermists they they collect and they they want to do it for a competition or something special, which is great. With me, I'm a partner in the business. Obviously, I got I got skin in the game, and so I'm always thinking of the marketing opportunities. So we we try to you know do things in a with a thought process of marketing with it, and then going into the trophy room. So it varies from taxidermist to taxidermist, but I would say when a taxidermist gets to collect a special trophy, it's that much more special to them because they're always working on them. And quite often they don't have, you know, working on other people's stuff quite often. They don't have the time to work on their own. So when they get to work on something special for themselves, I think it, they put that much more um, thought and energy into it. And what is, and a question I've never asked tax for me, what's the hardest animal to mount? You know, I think from my perspective and, and not for me doing the mounts themselves, I, I really want to specify this because I don't, I don't want to take credit from the guys that are doing the work for us at the wildlife gallery because I don't do the day-to-day -day taxidermy, but um, the skinned animals, you know, doing uh, skinned animals is in no hair, like the Africa stuff that has really short hair, but I would say elephant. Crocs, hippos, you know, um, th those are really, really tough because all the seams are exposed and it's mm -hmm. not just mounting it. Once you get it mounted, oh, that's all fine and dandy. The finish guys, you know, Jeremy Hart in our finish department who runs that, he's got to hide all those seams and he's got to paint it and make it look like it's not painted. So um, I would say Africa is definitely the most difficult taxidermy to do. So explain your, you, you said, explain the finishing department. So the, the taxidermists get done with everything and then it slides over to the finishing department. I was actually over there um, when he was doing an alligator, I think one time and to watch, yeah. to watch him finish it was, was amazing. Cause you look at it before and you're like, me, huh? Yeah. And then he's done with it. And you're like, Holy smokes, it's alive. That's a really good example of how much the finish department has to do. So let's go from a white-tailed deer to an alligator or crocodile. Okay. A white-tailed deer has all this hair, but around his eyes, he's got fleshy areas. The tax or the finish department has to replace the eyelids with the fleshy look and then paint it 
to be the colors that are appropriate for a deer. The nose pad to bring it back to color and not make it just look black because a deer's nose isn't just jet black. Mm -hmm. And then also gloss it up and make it look alive again. So you go from that deer where you got areas basically around the eyes and the nose, sometimes the mouth, and then you go to an alligator crocodile. When that thing shows up over to the finished department, it's this dried up piece of, excuse this, crap. Yeah. <laughs> because it has no eyeballs. It doesn't have the horns on top of the head. Typically in Africa, they're shot off. There's no interior mouth work whatsoever. That's all gone. And they have to rebuild all that with two-part epoxy, two specification, blend it into the scales of the croc or the alligator. And then once all that two-part epoxy work is done and it's hardened up and it's dried out, then you got to paint it with about four or five or six, sometimes seven different colors to get that translucent look of a croc or alligator. So the finish department is a huge unsung hero of the taxidermy uh, business. And they probably never get the love that they need from anybody. Well, we try to do our best to give them all love. But, yeah, you're right. The taxidermists, they, they're like, ah, the finished department. You know, it's the typical. We're still running a business. We yep. still have some internal crumbling. So let the finished guys deal with that. It's like just take five more minutes and make yours better so they can save themselves three hours. You know, that's yep. all we're asking. Yep. <laughs> so question question for you as we, as we kind of end this. What and, – and you'll have a good grip on this. What over the last five years or so, what is it? Is the total number of taxidermists across the U.S. is it staying the same? Is it is it shrinking? Because it's it's really like it's a lost art perfection. So I know just around me there used to be a couple local taxidermists, and you know as they get older and they retire, you don't like me personally. I don't see as many younger taxidermists coming into it. Yeah, I think that's a pretty good assessment. Um, what we've started to do, because, yeah, I think the workforce in general is tougher to find in every business, and, and every business is struggling there. Um, we're actually finding that some young blood, if you will, directly out of high school that's more tradesman-like, uh -huh. giving them a vision and a future with a, with a corporation that's not only going to pay, um, you know, competitive salaries – but also with benefits as well and retirement opportunities. Um, so the, our last couple taxidermists are actually the last three guys are young men right out of local high schools that have a huge desire to work um, in the outdoor industry, if you will, but in taxidermy in general, they just love hunting and fishing mm -hmm. in the taxidermy um, trade. And they've been a huge success. Now, rewind or from like five six years ago when i tried to bring in we literally moved a taxidermist from north carolina moved a taxidermist from kentucky you know or different areas mm -hmm. of the country uh to be that were already uh, accomplished if you will and it was hard to fit in and they just didn't work because quite often a, a trained taxidermist is a loner they're by themselves they don't get input and when i talk about checking your ego at the door they can't check their ego at the door. And if you're, brought, if you're not brought up in an environment of teamwork where you're going to be criticized, if you will, constructively in a properly, proper manner, you just don't work. And so it's better for us to train them nowadays. And, and, and I've got a guy in the shop that's been mounting critters. Um, and Jim Hicks, he's been there for 
mounting critters for 40 years and and he's great and then all the way down to these young guys that are really starting to shine and and um, make a name for themselves in our shop Um, but it's hard to find that guy or that gal because i you know obviously charlotte you know is a taxidermist Mm -hmm. as well so um it's yeah it's hard to find and i think a lot of people look at it and being a taxidermist is actually a lot harder than what people think. Like the, the skill and the time and just what you have to focus on as you're doing it, it. It always amazes me to watch a great taxidermist work because it truly is an art form. So when you have these, these younger guys, which you bring up and I actually, I a hundred percent agree with that model because a lot of times um, in the businesses that we have, it's the same thing because the job is so specific of what you need done. A lot of times you try to bring somebody else in and, and well, they've been set in their ways for 20 years, try to get them to mold into what exactly you're looking for. Sometimes it's better to start from scratch. And I say, teach them within how the company molds and how we, how we do things. And it's, it's a quicker learning curve doing it that way than, than sometimes bringing somebody in from the outside. Yeah. I, yeah, you, you said it exactly right. And I, I liken the taxidermist that's really good to the two percenters in all of our businesses and life in general. You know, your editors, your camera guys, it, it, the best ones are the ones that pay attention to the fine details, that two percent. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, the, the two percenters or one percenters, whatever you want to call them in any industry, in anything they do in life. Those people are the ones that are going to be real successful because they pay attention to the small details. They have the patience to do it right, even if it takes a little longer. And, uh, you know, it's just it's just what works. And and finding them at a young age now is key because the older older folks are set in their ways. And maybe I'm that guy. Maybe I'm set in my ways. I think but you're, you're getting set in your ways as you get older, too. I think it's, I think it's just yeah, a habit. Yeah, I think so. There's no question, but also within the, the corporation itself, I try to look in the mirror quite often and and take take in account new ideas, innovative things. I, I always tell my team, I don't always have the best idea, but I'm a pretty good implementer. So if you can convince me it's a good idea or a great idea, I will absolutely implement it. So I try to be that guy for them and, and let them have a voice. And that that truly makes a great leader because you know, a lot of the leaders are great at implementing, but they, they don't come up with all the ideas. That's, that's the team and the, and the knowledge you got underneath you that really do that, but you need that person to mold it and put it all together and now get everybody on the same page to work as the team. Yeah. And I think that came from the top down. I think Brad, when he brought me part of the corporation and other leadership in it, he's, he does not have to be that guy with the idea at all. Um, he he will just stand behind the right ideas, the good ideas, and 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 uh, let them let us do our thing. So again, it's it starts at the top. And being a military guy, I had those leaders, generals and colonels that I worked for. I was blessed to have great opportunities with great leaders, and and it molded me uh, to be who I am today for sure. Well, everybody listening, if it, I hope you picked up a some key things, obviously the gallery does great work in, in dependable, reliable, like all, all that stuff that you want out of a taxidermist. But if you've heard Dan talk over the last hour, their culture and what they believe in, it's, it's more than just a taxidermy shop. Like it's a, it's a, it's a group that you can really relate with. They do things the right way. 
all the way from Brad at the at the top. And you've heard Dan mention Brad's name probably ten times over the last hour, um, just because he's a great guy. I'm, I've been fortunate to to know Brad some time now too, and and he is a great guy, and he's one that if he tells you something, that's what he means, and that's that's what's going to happen. Honesty is in the outdoor industry is is tough to come by, but the gallery has it. Amen to that for sure. Well, thanks for coming on, Dan. Um, I look forward to Man, actually it was a pleasure. seeing you in the field field again this fall. I tell you what, Saskatchewan, because I was just up there bear hunting. Um, when you guys go up deer hunting this fall, you guys are going to be in for a treat. It is. We are. It, it's a couple years now of of we were we were semi concerned to how the winter went last year because it came came early and lasted a long time without the thaws in between. But come this spring, wasn't it, it wasn't bad at all. I mean, the deer numbers Good. are high, and the deer that we had on camera last year that we know was making it to this year. That's that's the exciting thing about Saskatchewan is you can literally watch these deer for five or six years grow and develop because it's. Oh. There's no hunt. It's not like Michigan. If you see a big deer here, you may never see him again. Up there, there's just there's not as much hunting pressure. Everything's spread out, so you can truly watch this deer grow. Well, you can't get me any more excited, and I just need to stay off the trigger till it's the right time. <laughs> so yeah, so that is a hundred percent. So Lance, Lance, and Ashton, and all the guys up there, they will a hundred percent show you. The trophy, the the trail cam picks of of the deer, and a lot of the times they do a really good job because especially you know a lot of guys from our neighborhood or or, or states that don't have giant deer, they'll show you more importantly the deer that you're going to see that's a young deer, and you're going to look at it and yeah. go, yeah, but it's 155 inches, and they're going to yeah. go, yep, but it's only three and a half, so we, we we can't we can't shoot this deer, but we've got this six and a half year old deer that doesn't even look as big in the trail cam picks because his body is literally almost twice the size. <laughs> and this is the one you're targeting. And they'll, they do a great job of making sure to go over that when, when you sit in the stand. Well, good. And, Make sure you have a conference call with your team. Mark, so they know this, your big meathead buddy, Dan's coming. This is Dan. Say, hey, his wife, his wife's just fine. She'll do, you can let her be by herself. You might want to sit with this. Dude. You know, Dan, Dan may shoot the first 120 inch deer that he sees, but, and, and it's, but it's so cool up there because a big deer will come in at one 30 in the afternoon, unpushed oh, yeah. just in its natural state, because there's, there's really nothing pushing them up there. There's no other hunters yeah. like the closest hunter that you'll be next to is a, literally two and a half to three miles away. I mean, think That's about awesome. that in Michigan. How many hunters in the first week of November are between you and three miles away? Oh, goodness. I lose track. I lose count. Yeah. The, I mean, the deer in Michigan do a great job, actually, to make it to be two and a half or three and a half year old. Just the, the zigzagging that they have to do for that couple week period. Absolutely right. Yeah. Well, Absolutely. thanks, Dan. All right, Mark. You have a great day. Thanks yeah, again. You too. Thank you everyone out there for all the support and downloads. Don't forget, go leave a five-star rating and a written review on Apple Podcasts. That always helps. Also, if you're looking to book the hunt of a lifetime, go visit WTA at WorldwideTrophyAdventures.com or give the team a call in the office at 1-800-755-8247.